Hello and welcome to another episode of A Murderous Affair, the podcast about women in history known for mayhem and murder. My name is Gabrielle and today I'd like to start off with some kind of exciting news actually. This has been something that has been in progress for a while now and I just really haven't had the guts yet basically to launch it, but we are officially on Patreon. And for those of you guys who don't know, Patreon is kind of a crowdfunding website that a lot of creators use to help them with whatever they're working on. So for example, for Murderous Affair, there are different tiers that you can donate to monthly or just once, um, and each tier will unlock certain benefits. So like some tiers you may be able to see first looks at what the new episode of the week will be, some tiers will get you behind the scenes, some tiers will allow you to get onto live streams. Basically there's lots of really cool rewards and things built into the system. It not only functions as a way for creators to connect with their audience, but it allows the creators to kind of fund whatever project they're working on. And while I love A Murderous Affair and I love dedicating my time to it, right now I am a one-woman army, so any kind of help that I could get would be great. And I know right now it's really hard with the pandemic, so don't feel pressured if you obviously don't have the means or the time, or I'm just really glad that people are listening to this podcast, but I figured I'd put it up there just in case anyone was interested in kind of donating to help out every month. There are kind of a lot of expenses that go into like having a podcast hosting site and a website and merch design and all that and it would just kind of be nice to have a little bit extra coming in to help with those things and specifically those things. This wouldn't just be like for my oh cool spending money type thing. It would just be for things to make a murderous affair better and really focus on it. So if you guys are interested go ahead and check out my A Murderous Affair Patreon which I will link in the description of this episode or you can go on to patreon.com and search for A Murderous Affair, the name of the podcast, and our webpage should come up hopefully if everything's gone well and smooth as it should. But it's exciting news and I thought it'd be really fun to kind of announce and see what you guys thought of it. Uh, feel free to let me know what you think. If you have any experience with Patreon, let me know if there's anything I should look to do or um, any specific rewards or tiers you guys would like to donate for or have if you're interested in having a monthly subscription to Patreon and seeing what cool stuff can come out. But without further ado, let's just go into this week's murderess. So our murderess of the week is a woman who killed her billionaire lover and whose sex life somehow became more polarized and radical and the focus than the actual murder she committed. Her name is Cecile Brossard. Not much is known about her early life other than her parents divorced at a young age and that she lived with her mother for a little while before moving in with her father in the Paris suburbs. Her father worked at an ad agency and seemed to be mostly kind of absent or have hardly any kind of imprint in her life, despite having her live with him. Reportedly, he was really into the hands-off style of parenting, highlights of which included letting Cecile watch A Clockwork Orange when she was eight years old and home alone. Her father, in a move that screams dad of the year, told the press that he believes as a young adult she began working as a prostitute. However, Cecile denies this. As a young adult, she says that she first began working in England as an au pair and then got a job as a waitress. Eventually, she made her way back to Paris where she worked at a restaurant in the Charles de Gaulle International Airport. 
I'm so sorry already for my pronunciation. She eventually moved from the restaurant to a duty-free shop in the airport, and then from working at the duty-free shop to being a call girl for wealthy Parisian men. This is where the point of argument comes in. Cecile says that she never sold sex for money, but her father claims just the opposite. At one point, she met someone named Xavier Guillet, who was a kind of natural herbalist medical practitioner, and they were married in Las Vegas in 1998. However, their marriage is not actually recognized in Switzerland. And I really, I got a lot of my information from Murderpedia, and I really enjoyed how this one article phrases the next piece of what they consider vital information. Quote, after meeting Guillette, Cecile, by most accounts, engaged in an active extramarital sex life. According to some press reports, she had a particularly keen interest in sadomasochistic sex. But she had other interests as well. Cecile had harbored an interest in art since her childhood and pursued her interest in sculpture, painting, and interior decorating as an adult. At her house, she sculpted erotically themed set statues and composed sexually charged poems. Obviously, this means that she was some sort of crazed sex demon whose appetite for men couldn't be quenched even by the most outlandish sex acts, and therefore it's no surprise that she turned to murder. This is sarcasm for those of you who can't see my face. And, like, I get it. Sex sells, but the fact that I can find out her preferred sexual kinks easier than I could find out what her birthday was, which I still don't know, is ridiculous. Anyway, she meets Edward Stern the man who would be her victim, through some of her art dealer friends. In 2001, they were all at a dinner in a fancy upscale restaurant. Now, some people claim that Edouard was interested in her dominatrix talents, apparently which were well known, and some claim that no, no, it was actually her artistic side that appealed to him the most. Either way, they began some sort of relationship. They were seen together at restaurants and events over the next few years, and Cecile would go with him on business trips to places like Siberia, Australia, and even to this fancy private African game preserve where he liked to hunt big game. And yes, he was one of those men who not only liked to hunt big game, but he liked to collect and keep high-power guns at his Geneva, Switzerland apartment. Nothing wrong with owning guns or anything like that. Um, but just within the story, it just kind of makes sense. It feels like it's almost more of a fiction than a reality. A little bit about Edward. He was a billionaire international banker who was apparently 38th on France's most wealthy list. He was born into an extremely rich family, and he kind of just inherited the private investment firm Bank Stern from his family, revolutionized it, and then sold it for 30 million francs. And that was all when he was just 22. That's what he did to make his living, basically. And you can imagine his death caused some pretty massive shockwaves. During the time that Cecile and Edouard had this relationship, Cecile was still married to Xavier Guillet. Now, Cecile and Guillet's relationship seemed to be something more of a platonic relationship than a romantic relationship, according to those who knew them. But they were still, obviously, important to each other, and this seemed to be put to the test when, according to Cecile, Edouard proposed to marry her in December 2004, with part of the proposal being a gift of a million euros. She claims to have said she would not abandon her relationship with Guillet to marry and live 
live with Edouard. However, it isn't stated whether she said this before or after the money wasn't wired to her account a few days after the promised proposal. After the funds didn't show up, Cecile sent a letter to Edouard where she told him how the gift of a million euros would really prove how much he loved her. In January, Edouard wired the one million into Cecile's account only to have the wire transfer reversed and money frozen in February. Now, when questions about the money came up in court, Edouard's family claims that the money sent was actually a down payment for some paintings that Edouard was hoping to purchase. But Cecile and her lawyers maintain that this was an engagement present that was then revoked in order to maintain some kind of control over her or over the relationship. On February 28th, Cecile went to Edouard's apartment to talk about why the funds weren't there. Supposedly, Edouard said something like, quote, one million is a lot of money to pay for a whore. The next sequence of events are really unclear, but somehow it led to Edouard putting on a latex bodysuit letting Cecile tie, tie him up and insert a dildo into him and begin some of their like S&M foreplay, I guess. She then went to one of his drawers and pulled out one of those high-powered guns that Edouard liked to collect, and she shot him point blank. This ended up not actually being enough to just take him out with the one shot. Um, he was in his 50s, but he was also really, really in shape. And so after being shot, he stood up and only collapsed after Cecile shot him twice more. And then, just to make sure that he wouldn't get up again, Cecile shot him in the head. After killing Edouard, Cecile then took all the gear that she had brought over, the tights, a dog collar, the latex suit, the murder weapon, and some additional guns from Edouard's apartment along with the four spent shell casings. She even locked the apartment door with her own set of keys. Then she drove to where her husband, Guillet, was at his apartment, and on the way, she tossed the pistols into a lake. When she got there, she told Guillet that she and Edouard had had a horrible fight and that she was leaving for a few days. She then took a train to a, count, to a town called Villeneuve and then took a taxi to a Milan airport, which was some 185 miles away. And she threw the shell casings from the murder weapon and Edouard's apartment keys out the window. When she got to the airport, it was 4.30 in the morning and the airport was closed. Cecile tried to get the taxi driver to take her to Rome, but he refused, which I think should have been obvious to anyone. At that point, he'd already driven her the 185 miles to Milan, and I think he knew something was up. Her solution was to scream and pound at the taxi windows while he drove away, and then proceed to wait outside the airport in the cold until she could buy a one-way plane ticket to Sydney, Australia. Apparently she chose Australia so that she could be, quote, the place farthest away that she could go to. And this was also one of the places that Edouard had taken her on a business trip. So she kind of knew the area. In between flights, she had a chance to call her lawyer and give instructions so that they could block any kind of attempt by Edward to recover the million euros that he deposited into her account. Then she apparently took some anxiety meds and slept the entire 24 hour flight to Sydney. When she gets to Sydney, she only spends maybe a day there. It was enough time for her to check into a hotel and begin making phone calls. 
Now, at this point, she claims that she wasn't sure if Edward was actually dead or not. So she mailed the clothes that she'd been wearing the day of the murder to her aunt and uncle in France. And then she also told her husband to wash down the car that she'd driven to and from Edward's house. She also called Edward's half-sister and acted shocked when the sister told her about the discovery of the body. Now, it's believed by the prosecution that Cecile thought it would look better if she returned home immediately from her trip, as that would make her seem less guilty. And it's not like random first thing in the morning escapades halfway across the world could possibly make you look guilty at all, right? So Cecile took another 24-hour flight back to Switzerland. When she landed in Singapore for a connecting flight, she broke down into what was deemed a panic attack as she screamed and sobbed when she saw that Edouard's murder had made the front page in French newspapers. A doctor was actually called to examine her at the airport to decide whether or not it was safe for her to go on the returning flight, and she was still able to board the flight later. When she landed in Zurich, as soon as she got through customs, the police were already waiting for her. So the police were immediately suspicious because Cecile was one of only a few people to have keys to Edouard's apartment, something that they were looking into because the door had no signs of forced entry and had in fact been locked. Both Cecile and her husband were interrogated about their marital status, which was interesting because that didn't seem pertinent to a murder investigation, about their lawyers, um, and about their bank accounts. They were both also fingerprinted at this time. Cecile was questioned for nine hours longer than her husband, but she was ultimately released because there wasn't any evidence to tie her to the murder. The authorities did tap her and her husband's phones as well as not allowing her any more out of the country trip. It was actually within a few days of releasing her that the police were able to trace the license plate of the vehicle caught on camera speeding away from Edward's apartment at the estimated time of when the murder happened. And they were able to trace it to Cecile's husband. They used the fingerprints taken during their first interview, and it turns out that Cecile's matched the fingerprints found on the latex bodysuit Edward was found in. And at that point, she was immediately taken in for arrest. Apparently, her arrest also took a lot of people by surprise. Because Edward was this international banker, a lot of people were speculating that it was the Russian mafia or that he had other rival bankers or banking companies that had tried to take him out. When they arrested Cecile and this became such a big uh, story, obviously because of the sex factor, because of the fact that it was someone who was considered famous, it kind of took everybody by surprise. Cecile confessed and basically almost everything she said was confirmed. She confessed to shooting Edouard four times in the face, stomach, chest, and head. She took investigators to the lake that she disposed of the murder weapon, and a team of divers were able to recover it. She was subsequently taken to trial, and while in court, she interrupted the proceedings to say that, quote, My heart is full of remorse and pain. I have come to explain myself, not defend myself, and say how it happened. I know it was my fault. I want to tell him, them, his children, because, real quick, um, his children actually had testified privately, so they weren't at the court at the time. Continuing her quote, 
not to destroy Edward or dirty his name. To which the stern family lawyer said, if he was such a marvelous man, you shouldn't have shot him. Which I think has to be one of the best things that I've ever read or heard a lawyer say in court. Cecile was 40 years old when she was sentenced to eight years and six months in prison in 2009. She was actually released in November 2010 after having spent five years total in prison and four of those years were just waiting for trial. And that is the story of Cecile Brossard, who basically was almost put on trial more for her dominatrix life than the actual murder. And it was blame and she was actually blamed for getting Edward into this life, saying that she had taken this 50-year-old man and seduced him into these nefarious ways. Like actual articles wrote things like that. Um, and I just find her case really interesting because it is a perfect ex example of being a woman who has committed a murder, uh, just one stereotype and not looking any further into it. Um, we've got tons of men who did awful things and were also known for their quote-unquote sexual deviance, but with them it's taken more as like a, hmm, this is a pathology, let's look into it. But with the woman who do similar things or are considered to have like a sexual deviance or whatever, they're just kind of like, oh, well, that's why. It's because they have the sexual deviance that they committed murder. But then for when you look at male serial killers, it seems to be, well, this is, they're a serial killer with sexual deviance and it's different. It's just, it's really interesting to look at the psychology and just like the reasoning behind it and how we still kind of just, even when it comes to murder and crime, there are still these total differences in the way that you look at men when it comes to sex and murder, and women when you come to sex when it comes to sex and murder. So I would love to have a psychologist or someone who is more well versed in this aspect of the field come onto the podcast and talk about it because I'm so interested just to hear what their perspective is. But that is all I have for you guys today. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you did, let me know your thoughts in the comments, or you can reach me on social media. I am on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram as Frumius Reads. That's F-R-U-M-I-O-U-S-R-E-A-D-S. Frumious Reads. You can check out the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Libsyn, on Podbean, basically anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Or you can go to the podcast homepage on frumiousreads.com forward slash a dash murderous dash affair. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Stay spooky, friends. Goodbye. <laughs>